Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner, and my co-host today is Sandra Miles. Sandra, could you share a little bit about how our listeners can self-care? I am Sandra Miles. Sometimes the discussion in our podcast can be difficult to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. We encourage all of you to care for your safety and well-being. Reach out for emotional support from family or friends, a counselor if you have one, or a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website. We'll share that address with you at the end of the podcast. Thanks so much, Sandra. And our episode today, uh, we welcome Carly. Uh, Carly, can you share just a brief summary of who you are and what you're all about uh, for our listeners? Absolutely. Thank you so much for letting me be here. Um, I'm Carly Gaskins. I grew up in East Tennessee in a pretty low-income household, um, was dual enrolled, did some college courses, ended up getting my bachelor's of social work, and then later went on to be a nationally credentialed victim advocate. And now I work at Emory and Henry College, working for the Office of Violence Against Women campus grant program. And I do a lot of um, intervention, uh, programming, improving our policy and protocols and responses to uh, any sexual assault, domestic violence, dating violence, stalking on campus. And um, that's what I love to do. Thanks so much, Carly. And, you know, our listeners are all here to support and grow our own steps toward hurt and then journey to healing. And so we all have that experience or more than one sometimes that brings us to our microphone. And could you share a little bit about what happened in your life that brings you to your mic today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been the victim of multiple situations. Um, I was in several unhealthy relationships throughout my life, but the one that I think caused the most trauma and took the longest recovery wise was my sexual assault. When I was a 14 year old, I was, um, raped by a male in my neighborhood. He was a friend of a friend. He was 19 or 18 at the time. And I was 14. That was my first encounter, um, with a sexual experience. So it was not, um, not very great. Not very great. Rape never is, but it took a lot of trauma work throughout my entire life to kind of regain my control and my life back afterwards. And so this is a time when you were 14. So you were around ninth grade. Yeah, I was. It was actually the summer. I was just out of eighth grade and was going into high school. And it happened that summer right before high school, my freshman year of high school. And this guy you said was 18 or 19. Was he in high school or out of school? I believe he was in high school at the time, but was getting close to getting out. Um, it was kind of vague because we weren't ever close. We, um, I had some friends in the neighborhood and uh, they had always been my best friends. I'd always run around with them every weekend when I'd stay with my biological dad on the weekend. But they were about two years older than me. So they were in high school, but they also ran around with a bunch of people that were much older with them as well. And the sexual assault that happened to me with this man, that was only the second time I'd ever met him. Oh my goodness. So 
so just walk us through this. So you are, you know, rising into ninth grade. It's the summer. And you had some older friends who would hang out. Was it literally in the neighborhood? Y'all would just get together and hang out in people's houses or swim pools or what, how, how, what was the social scene scene like? Yeah. So my friends and I would kind of run around through the neighborhood and we walked the neighborhood a lot because we lived in a pretty, pretty good neighborhood um, and all by all you know, common standards. But so, yeah, we would just be hanging out in their neighborhood. We would all catch up. Um, we would hang out at her house or my our other friend's house or at my house. Um, I would come stay with my biological dad on the weekends, but he did work throughout the weekend. So I was mostly home alone on the weekends other than when I did get to see my friends and we would walk you know, about a half a mile up and go to the white dollar store and we get like snacks and then come back. Uh, but they, like I said, they had some older friends they hung around with. And so by proxy where I was with them every weekend, I did meet a lot of, um, more older women and men. I was frequently around 18 and 19 and sometimes 20 year old men while I was 14 because I was friends with them. And the particular man that I, that assaulted me, I had met him the week prior and he had said that I was really cute and I, I'm 14. I was like, I don't, okay, (laughs) cool, but I'm going to go back to my dad's house now. And then the following weekend I was with them and we went, um, it was literally less than a mile from my house in the neighborhood. If you took the road, if you drove it, it was about approximately exactly a mile. But walking wise, they were currently renovating the other half of our neighborhood. It wasn't a full rounded neighborhood at that time. So we would leave my house, go maybe 100 yards, walk up a steep hill, and we would then hang out in that neighborhood And somehow or another, I'm actually not sure whose house it was that we were all together and hanging out together. I just remember that it was the house right below the 94.9 guy's house um, that hosted the 94.9 show with all of the really cool pop songs that were coming out. So you wound up at this house with all of these. How many people do you think were there? Uh, Let's see. It was me and my two girlfriends. And there was the man that assaulted me and three other men around his age as well. And it originally started at a different house. They were the men and one of my friends who played basketball. They were all playing basketball together. Um, And then we came back around and ended up at the house below the 94.9 guy's house, which I still just think that's cuckoo bananas to this day. And we all were kind of hanging out up there. And I remember my two friends and some of the guys started smoking marijuana. And at 14, I wasn't really doing that kind of stuff yet. Um, Unfortunately, because childhood trauma, I was indulging in alcohol previously, but I had never smoked marijuana before. I went into the house to get a drink. And that's kind of where everything started after that. Sandra, do you have any questions so far? Because I'm I'm kind of making sure I've got this set up. So just a couple younger girls. I assume there weren't any 14 or 15-year-old boys, right? No. Just these. So younger girls, pack of older boys, 
it's just the younger girls and these older men. Was that the kind of like, was that normal for everyone involved? Did every, did all of the guys there, were they used to hanging out with younger girls and were all the younger girls used to hanging out with older men? Yes, they were. The, a lot of the men, other than, I believe two of them that were there, one being the one that assaulted me, I had met before and hanging out with my friends. They were normal men that I saw frequently when I was with my older girlfriends. And so, yeah, uh, very frequently the younger girls were hanging out with these older men. And I'm trying to remember that it was a different time because like in, in a 2022 context, it is just hard to to consider that no one thought there was anything off about that. But I completely, I can understand like back then it was probably different. Yeah, it's bananas. There's no way in this day that I would ever let my child wander off with someone several years older than him. That's just not at all in the realm of what my brain can even think about. But yeah, I just, but also honestly, a lot of the time, where I was alone on the weekends where my biological dad was working, a lot of the times I was just alone. So I don't know that he was even aware that I was hanging out with him. And and I think, yeah, plus I also think, Sandra, your point's well taken. And it's also a different time and place when we think about our parents didn't ask, you know, much about what we were doing. And I, I kind of remember a similar experience. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I do too. Um, you, know, you just get on your bike and ride away and then you came home when you came home. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we have, I'm, I'm thinking about the time he complimented you, um, first to catch your attention, which was so slick, right? And you wonder if he's done it to more, but we can get there later. So let's continue the story. So now you're What's going on now? The the uh, there's alcohol or oh, marijuana. What was it? Marijuana at this house? Yes, there was marijuana. My two girlfriends and some of the other uh, guys there were smoking marijuana. At my age, I had dabbled in alcohol, but I hadn't really smoked marijuana before. I went into the house because I was starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because also, my girlfriends were starting to make out with these guys a little bit. And that wasn't really my scene. So I went to the house uh, to get some water, just kind of cool down and just kind of get out of the weird situation that was happening outside. And he followed me inside, asked if I wanted some water. I was like, yeah, I, that's what I came in here to do. He was like, you want to watch some TV? And I, and I said, yeah, that would be great, actually. And he was like, well, the TV's downstairs. Let's go down there. And I'm 14, not knowing any better. And I was like, yeah, I'm. let's go. I'm down. Let's go. So we get downstairs. And at that point, it's just he and I down there. All of my friends and the other older guys are outside still on the porch, smoking marijuana and hanging out. And at this point, it's just he and I in the basement. And I just remember it was just so musky. It was the worst musky man smell I've ever smelled in my entire life and covered by heavy cologne, like cheap cologne that all the boys would wear back then. And it was very much a basement that was turned into a bedroom. So it was very like concrete floorish. Um, there were white tiles in some places where it seemed as though they were trying to renovate, but never really finished. And there was a TV stand that had DVDs in the TV stand. Um, 
like one of those wooden with the glass panel in the front and all the DVDs and CDs were in there and the TV was on the stand. And then the only other thing in there was the bed and it was just all black sheets, a total just man cave. Did it feel, I'm curious if it felt sultry, sexy, intimidating, or like all of the above. Like I'm trying to, you know, what lures us as young women into this man cave environment. I think there, if you can remember maybe the mix of emotions or thoughts you had or intrigue or, you know, what was going on? I think a lot of it was confusion as to, okay, yeah, we were going to watch TV. I'm thinking living room. I'm not thinking, I'm thinking we're going to go down here, go to a den. There's going to be a TV. I've got my water. I can get a snack. We're good to go. And then I go down there and it's definitely someone's bedroom and it's definitely a man's bedroom. And I remember just kind of being a little shocked when I came in because that wasn't what I was expecting to walk into. And I think I got a little, like if if thinking back and putting myself back into those shoes of that night there was a little nervousness at that point when I realized that I was in this room alone with this man and everyone else was outside. Um, I did not find it very attractive um, or enticing in any way. He had, you know, complimented me the week before and I totally was not here for it. And it's not to say that I didn't have boyfriends. I totally had boyfriends before then and, you know, had made out with my boyfriend or whatever, but, um, he just was not an attractive man. I remember he was wearing those really long, awful, ugly jean shorts that were really loose fitted and came below their knee and was wearing a green Abercrombie or a, yeah, Abercrombie shirt. And his hair was like buzz cutted and he just was not, not my type not my type. I did not find him attractive in any way. I can imagine. I'm, I'm, I really am for some reason stuck on the imagery of it. The like, like older men with the, the younger women. And I was trying to put myself in that um, mindset and, and remembering back when I was younger too, and I would hang out with my dad or my dad's friends, which I know is, is completely different from what you're describing. But um, I, I wonder too, if there was a level of like comfort because it's like, okay, these are, older guys that we're here with, uh, if anything happens, they will protect us. No, for sure. And I think I, I see that because I think I would have been more comfortable if any of the other older men would have been there as well. I don't know if that necessarily looking back would have been safer for me, but some of the older men, you know, I mentioned that I had met them before. I knew some of them and I did live with a single dad and he did have friends over and we would go out and have lunch together, dinner together, or he would take me to karaoke with some of his friends because one hosted karaoke. Um, and so I do think that I would have felt more comfortable if one of the other men, or especially if one of my friends had been with me. Um, but I think the sense of comfortability was there until I got secluded in that room with that man. And, and then, you know, I think we should, I mean, we don't have to get too graphic, but maybe we talk a little bit about how the next, you know, two hours unfolded and how you got out and, you know, whatever you feel comfortable telling us, Carly, would be Yeah, great. sure. So, um, so at that point, um, 
when we got downstairs, he did turn on the TV and we sat on the bed. He was beside me and he again complimented me. And I was saying that I didn't really want to pursue anything with him because he was much older than me. And he, I remember started tickling me. And to this day, that's something that triggers me. I do not like to be tickled in any shape, form or fashion. I don't find it funny. I don't find it cute. I don't find it attractive. Um, but he started tickling me and I asked him to stop, which he did not. And that ended up with him laying on top of me on the bed and kind of pinning me to tickle me. And at that point I was asking him to get off and so that I could go and get out because I was, I was starting to realize that this was not a good situation that my, what I was saying was not being heard or respected and valued. And I continued to say no. And he then kissed me uh, to which I did not really respond. And that made him a little bit angry. So I ended up getting dragged down to the floor and I remember being pretty fuzzy afterwards because I had hit my head on the, on the floor pretty hard after he dragged me down. And, um, that is of course when it happened, I remember being pretty violent and some of some of the imagery of the rape itself, it took a long time to really manifest because for a long time after that, after that had happened, I went home and didn't tell anybody. And I just really, really repressed it and never wanted to think about it. And I didn't tell anybody. And for a long time, it just didn't exist in my mind. Um, and I remember I was going through trauma therapy several, um, just two years ago, to be quite honest, for this exact event. And I went through trauma therapy because things were coming back to me. And as I was going through trauma therapy, I realized certain details of it that I had not previously remembered. And it was quite violent. And um, I remember he ended up finishing on my stomach and then just got up and sat back in his bed. Um, at that point, I pulled my he had left my shirt on, just pulled it up. Um, so I used my shirt at the time to kind of clean off, um, the ejaculate from my stomach, pulled my shorts back on and there was a door cause it was very much a basement. It was the same layout as my home. All the houses were built the same in our neighborhood. It was the same exact layout as my home. So there was a door leading out and I remember just walking out. He just let me go. And I walked out and I remember just taking a deep breath. Like what the hell just happened to me? And I ran home and I didn't tell a single soul. I remember going home and I took my panties off and there was blood in them. And I threw those away. I then took my clothes and I washed them. And what makes me, this is about to make me cry. And I'm sorry, because this is kind of a more stupid thing to like make me cry when thinking about it. But I remember at the time, like that was my favorite shirt. <laughs> That's so stupid to cry about when you're thinking about your trauma, but it was my favorite shirt. It was mustard yellow and it was like a T-strap tank top. And I was wearing um, blue jean shorts and brown sandals. And I remember washing my clothes, but I threw away the underwear, but I never wore those clothes again. And I 
got home and took all the clothes off, did what I said with them. And then I just laid in bed and I just stared at the ceiling fan for, I don't know how long I stared at that ceiling fan. And I remember my dad coming home and asking me how my day was. And I was like, yeah, it was great. Just a normal day. And he went to bed and then I took a shower and then just continued on with life as if nothing had ever happened. Um, from that point forward though, I never hung out with my girlfriends because I think in a way I blamed them and was mad at them. So I, I just kind of blew them off after that. I never hung out with them ever again. They tried and I just blew them off every single time until eventually they stopped trying. Well, I didn't want to cut you off while you were talking, but I do want to take a moment to affirm that there is no stupid thing to cry about. Whatever um, triggers your emotion is completely valid. And I, I don't want you to feel like you have to apologize for your feelings, especially not with us, but, you know, not with anyone. And you know what? Also, I, um, thank you, Sandra, for saying that uh, those words of encouragement, because the power that I hear in your voice, Carly, is the acknowledgement of how many levels and ways in which when we are victimized, objectified, raped, harmed, harassed, degraded, all of those things, how all of us, all the things about us are affected. And it might sound really trivial for some people to hear that your favorite shirt is now a horrible experience, right? I can tell you, but but the things we treasure about our lives, the mementos, the the rock and pebble we picked up when we walked on a beach one day, the you know, the favorite bracelet or whatever it is, there's we have these treasured little keepsakes of our lives. And what I've I fear that we have not talked about this, Sandra or Carly, on our podcast enough, is those magnificent treasures are also hurt and harmed when we're dehumanized because they will never feel special and beautiful again. It's almost impossible. Someone took away not just our body, not just our mind, not just our emotional abilities to navigate with confidence, but even those tiny little parts of ourselves that we used to love, and now they've been dipped in tar. I feel like the oil spill of the oceans, like it is almost impossible to clean up the mess. I was just going to say, I'll also add that um, I used to serve as um, a deputy timeline coordinator for a campus that I worked at. And it is so common, like you remembering uh, exactly what you were wearing, but more specifically that you never wore it again, that you still had, you still had it, but you never wore it. Uh, is is such a common uh, refrain that I've heard in a lot of survivor stories. And I do think that there is something about both the trauma, but also the healing of, um, having those reminders. But then you also mentioned it, it wasn't just the shirt, like even tickling, right? It, no, at no point for the rest of your life, most likely, will there be any joy or um, appreciation for something that for some people is just kind of a thing that people do or something fun. Um, so it's, 
it's there. Everything you describe sounds completely reasonable and, uh, for lack of a better term, normal for me. Yeah. I, yeah. So, Carly, I think it was, and you did it so powerfully and beautifully and clearly. And thank you for, you know, going there. And I know it must have been harm, harmful even in this moment. Um, but n- now let's, if you're comfortable, let's talk about this journey because, you know, you started out telling us where you are now in life, which is a really powerful, positive, helpful place. But I, I think before we get to that part, some of the things that you had to go through in your healing journey, you referenced, you know, getting help and support. Can you talk to us and give us maybe three things that were real hard, really hard for you and three things that really helped you? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say some of the things that were most difficult for me was where I did not choose to share with anyone. And to be quite honest, in the family that I grew up in, we were very low income and we weren't all super close knit. So it's at most times in my life, I didn't feel like I could rely on them to pick up the pieces that had been damaged. I had to pick up those pieces. And so I just really felt like there was no one in my corner. So when that happened, I was young one. And so, you know, I knew what sex was, but I also wasn't really wanting to register what had just happened to me. And so I didn't tell anyone, I didn't know who to go to outside of family, but I didn't trust that information with them that it would get anywhere if I told them. Um, And so I would say some of the hardest things was where I had shoved it down so much because I didn't tell anyone. I didn't want to think about it. So I just shoved and shoved and shoved to the point that I mostly forgot about it. And it wasn't until later in my life, I was actually, I believe 19 at the time I was, I had gotten my associates of social work at a local community college. And I started working at a co-ed inpatient rehabilitation center for substance abuse. And my first night there, a young woman was talking to me because I, I worked night shift and we, she was the first to wake up. I was, you know, supervising the women's room and she just felt like she could share and felt compared compelled to share. And I'd always been the person that friends had come to if they ever needed help or something to share because they knew that I would be their support and their shoulder and could give them the resources. And when she started sharing at the time, I didn't realize how similar it was to mine. And so when she was sharing her story with me, I remember I started crying and I was never that person because all of my friends came to me with their traumas. And I was able to be that support person. And I would cry after, but I always wanted to make sure that they had the space to feel that they weren't harming me by sharing their story. And I remember her sharing with me and I started crying and I remember thinking, what the heck is happening? And on my ride home, I just could not stop crying. And I just felt gross. And I went home and I showered and I went to bed and I was still really hung up on it. And I actually started having PTSD nightmares um, where the flashbacks kind of started coming back. And there would be times during the day where something would happen and it would flash me back. And it was really hard trying to pick up the pieces and put it together. 
Uh, Carly, let's talk about something we have not talked about so much. A lot of um, our listeners are both survivors, but they're also supporters. And when you're, if you could just dig in and help everyone understand more clearly what you just described, what does that feel like? How do you handle the the trigger and the, the flashback? What does that mean? Can you define it in your own words? Yeah, sure. So for me in particular, there was certain smells that would trigger. Um, and I was still trying to understand it myself, but I could be walking through a department store and smell a cologne that was similar to what I smelled on that night. And all of a sudden I felt on the verge of panic. I felt utterly ashamed and I felt out of control and I felt gross and I felt just not happy with myself. And then I started to have flashbacks of just images that would come and I would start seeing these things and bits and pieces, but things were really sloppy when they first started coming back to me. It would be images of this man and myself, or sometimes it would just be images of the patio where they were, or the porch where they were smoking and all of us were together before I had went inside or pieces of the house. But as I had mentioned, all of the houses were built the same. And so it was like I was seeing my house, but the flooring was different or the walling was different. And it took a long time for me to piece that together. And the flashbacks and the the flashbacks got started getting longer and more concrete and more clear. But also, as I moved forward in the amount of flashbacks and the amount of nightmares that I was having, and I was really coming to terms with everything that had happened, it seemed that my triggers and the things that would send me into an epic send me into something that reminded me of the event became more and more. I felt that I couldn't turn the street without or turn the corner without having something send me into a downward spiral. I was really not in a great mental health space when all of this started coming back. Can you describe a moment? You know, the smell of the cologne was a trigger for me too. How did you navigate that? And how did you even realize that it was a trigger or did it come on with a you know, train wreck kind of effect and how did you feel? So for me, the one that comes to mind specifically is one of the more significant flashbacks that I had had was that dang shirt because I had kept it, you know, I, I never worn it again, but I kind of, I kept it and I shoved it towards the very end of my closet. And even though it didn't even fit me anymore, it was still hanging there in the back of my closet. And I remember, um, I actually moved out when I was 16 and started living alone at 16. And so I had just kind of moved all my stuff. I made my washing room, my closet, because I had just had way too many clothes because I never threw them away. But I, after this had kind of occurred with that young woman at my job, um, I came home and one day I got a wild hair and decided I'm going to throw out all these clothes because I have way too many. I'm going to clean out my closet. I'm going to clean out my shoes. I'm going to go donate them somewhere. This just needs to be taken care of. And I was going through my closet. It was definitely an all day affair. And I got to that shirt. And I remember feeling very, I don't want to say nauseated. I don't feel like nauseated is the right word, but I felt sick with myself 
because I hadn't processed the guilt and shame at any point in that time. And so I felt very just disgusted with myself and I felt dirty and I felt unclean. And then as I like picked it up, the feeling of it, and I don't, it kind of put me back to that point of me using my shirt to clean off the ejaculate from my stomach. And I just felt that I didn't have control. My It felt that my body was just not doing what I was asking it to in that moment. And I remember just kind of taking the shirt and getting so angry because I got such a visceral reaction from it. And I just tossed it in the trash, didn't even put it in the trash bag that I had in the laundry room of just tossing shirts in nonchalantly. I remember going to my kitchen and just slamming it in the trash can and shoving it down. And then I went to my room and I sat down and I just cried for the longest time. And I would say that that was a time where a lot of memories came back to me. And, you know, very similar. I was like, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to feel this way. I need to figure this out. I need to do something because this is not working. I cannot shut down if I smell a certain smell or if I see a shirt or if I, one thing that I picked up on, um, in trauma therapy that I found so bizarre is even though the most direct route to my house, you know, coming from my jobs or my college or whatever, the most direct route coming back to my house was driving past the neighborhood that my assault occurred in. And my entire life, once I started driving, I went the longer route to get home. And I never realized that that's what I was doing until I started going through trauma therapy. And I think a lot of times now I just try to recognize my triggers and to realize that it wasn't my fault and that I'm not to be blamed. I shouldn't feel shameful for what happened. He should feel shameful for what he did. And so when I get those feelings, I try to acknowledge one, what triggered it so that I can work on those triggers and be aware of them um, going through everyday life, but also to really kind of digest and process them and break down the emotions that though I've gone through trauma therapy and I'm much more open with my story these days and I'm very passionate in the work that I do and I love being a victim advocate so much and a lot of times I feel like survivors have a way of knowing other survivors when they interact and so I've accompanied young women in their SANE exams rather than family because they felt more comfortable with me and I would hold their hands through a SANE exam and be there for them. So just really being aware of what those triggers are and taking that and turning it into a strength that I can use to help others, but to also not blame myself. It just has taken a lot of work, but I would say that that's what it felt like for me. Yes. The only other one I, I do have, Carly, is happy places and relationships besides work, you know, is it chocolate? Is it (laughs) breathing in air? Is it for me? It was very much being outside. I'm a very outdoorsy person. I always found solace in being outside. I 
<laughs> to my family's they did not like it and neither did my friends, but I would often go on hikes alone because I wanted the silence. I wanted to be in the outdoors doing a hike by myself where it took that physical exertion and I could be alone with my thoughts, but also I just found it so peaceful outside. But I also found the physical exertion to be very therapeutic for me. Um, I also have several tattoos, very large tattoos. And I think that a lot of it comes from kind of a place where I find physical pain is easy to place. I know where it's coming from. I know what's causing it. Emotional pain is much harder to wrap your head around. And so for me, I would do very long hikes. I'd love to be outside where it was very quiet. and The sun was shining down on me. I'd be really hot. I'd be really sweaty. My muscles were tired. Um, I actually went to Colorado a few years ago and hiked my first 14er and man, that just about kicked my booty. I also got in trouble cause I wasn't supposed to, cause I was two weeks after a bilateral hernia repair. And so I got a little in trouble for that by my doctor, but it was, I just, I feel the most whole as a person, person, excuse me, when I'm outside and I'm putting through physical exertion or the sun is hitting my skin and I'm in that quiet, there may be other people there, but to be in the, you just hear the trees or the wind or the nature that is, has always been my comfort spot. Um, I like to go caving and I like to, I'm very terrified of heights. So it takes a lot of work, but I'm trying to work on rock climbing and rappelling. I've done it a few times I just find my happiness is outdoors, but in in terms of relationships, those, those have taken me quite a while to work on and get to a good place with. I'm in a very healthy and good relationship now, but it is definitely a lot of work because even at 26 and this assault happened when I was 14, I'm still trying to find what a healthy relationship looks like because most of my relationships after that were very unhealthy and they were abusive and I was not in a healthy space. And I unfortunately found a lot of comfort, um, in being very promiscuous. I had my first consensual sex at 15 and I've, I have a sex addiction. I'm trying to work on it. It's something my current partner and I work on together. And so there's still things that I work on with that, but I've found a healthy relationship, but it still takes work. A lot of my relationships from that point forward, all of my relationships, to be honest, were not successful. Oh my gosh, Carly, that was so helpful. Sandra, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I I really appreciate you being honest about um, your promiscuity after, because that's also a very common um, next step for a lot of sexual assault survivors. And unfortunately, it then becomes a reason why people don't believe them because people don't understand um, the desire to take your power back, essentially, to control your sexuality by saying, no one can take it away from me, so I'm going to give it away, not carelessly, but as often as I want. You know what I mean? So I really appreciate you um, putting words and feelings and emotions and humanity to that because, unfortunately, that continues to be another thing that is misunderstood. Absolutely. I agree completely. It's it's a long process trying to 
get your control back. It really is. But I, what, what I love too, Carly, is you just let every survivor out there know that no matter what your sexual choices are after you're, you're assaulted, if they're your choices, they're all good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. If they're, if they were your choice, who cares? Like, you know, the, the faith, you know, you have to think about your faith. You have to think about your body. You have to think about what's going to heal you, make you overcome fears. It's all the right choice. And it is a choice. And every one of those choices is respectful, you know? So thank you for like letting it all out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm much more open. I remember it was actually with my trauma therapist. She was the one that told me that I had a sex addiction and was trying to point things out to me. And I was in total denial. I was like, girl, you're crazy. I do not. And it wasn't until um, just a while ago that I really was like, okay, she was not wrong. (laughs) And so I've been working on it been working with her on it and working with my partner on it. We've, we've been making some success, but it's definitely a, a thing that we, I am dealing with right now. Yep. And there's luckily you can just sit with your partner and luckily you have a supportive partner and you can just sit with it and, and think it's an, it's another part of your journey and awesome that you shared it with us. Um, yeah, I think the only other thing I want to ask in our interview, and then Sandra, if you could, you know, roll it out from there, what, what, you know, when you made these choices for the the work that you do, which I laud and respect, and you know, Sandra, myself, and my co-hosts on this podcast, a lot of us find solace and healing in the work that we do with survivors and to continue change and. Um, on policy law and all of those things in communities. But if that is a path, maybe could you give a pro and a con? Like, I think the burnout could happen. You're doing so much and sitting with yourself at the same time. So what's the, how do you keep yourself whole in the work you're doing and prevent, you know, that fatigue and exhaustion and, you know, like you already described the crying sessions when your empathy is overwhelming for a similar situation for another survivor. So what, what's your healing and, and care for self look like in your current position? Um, for me, I think it depends on really trying to separate your work and life. And it's so, so hard to do, especially previously I worked a 24 hour uh, crisis hotline for victim and uh, victim advocacy. So we would regularly go out to local hospitals, police stations, um, college campuses, et cetera, and come at the scene after a crisis and go with them to the hospital and things like this. And so it was much harder for me in that position. But in the position that I have now, I try my best and it is something that I'm still working on. I'm not a master at it, but to leave work at work and to come home and to enjoy the things that I have at home. I have a partner that loves me and cares for me. I have a kiddo that adores me. I'm a single mom right now and I've got my partner. He's super supportive and him and my kiddo get along great, which is, I love it. But my kiddo takes a lot of that away. But also, um, if I can't be outside because it's not 
always feasible as a single mom to go and just go hike somewhere for the whole day. Uh, taking care of my kid, trying to get really fully immersed in whatever he finds super exciting for the day. But then I also like to just read books that take me out of that mindset. I'm a very much a fiction book reader. And so at the end of the day, I like to read a book to kind of take me out of work, take me out of that thought process because I have a hard time letting go of what um, some of my people do tell me because they are dealing with situations that some of them I understand. I've been there and I feel that and I can't understand everyone's situation and how they're recovering from their trauma or what's happened during their, uh, if they've gone, if it's gone to trial with mine, I never reported. So mine never went to court or to trial. And so I find it so important and I find it so personally rewarding to do the work that I do. And I love the work that I do. And I love to support my super strong, empowered survivors. But it is, it can be hard to hear every day. Burnout is very much a real thing. And I don't get triggered as much these days. I will say I've gotten a pretty rather good handle on that. So it, it takes very specific circumstances. Cause I won't say that I've never triggered. There are times that I've left work and I, I'm not in a good headspace, but I think doing whatever makes you happy, whatever brings you that inner solace, whatever can gives you, give you that inner peace or that if it's inner quiet, if you just need quiet, if that's a bubble bath, if that's going for a walk, if that's watching your kid's favorite TV show or reading your favorite book or going and watching Grey's Anatomy on binge or whatever it is that makes you happy. But I do encourage people to try and look into healthy coping mechanisms because for a long time, and I will say that on certain days, I don't always abide by this, but, um, you know, going home and trying to forget by, uh, getting super intoxicated is not very helpful in the long run. And so trying to encourage others to use healthy coping mechanisms, whether that's deep breathing or yoga, I know yoga and stretching can be very therapeutic for me and bring me out of that mindset when I'm coming home from work and I've had a heavy day from work. Um, I think it's important to find those things and not every coping mechanism works for everyone. And I think that's something else that needs to be talked about because the one we hear most often is deep breathing, right? Everyone talks about deep breathing being their coping skill. For me, deep breathing sends me into the worst panic attack I will ever have because I feel like I cannot gain my breath. And so I very quickly found out that that doesn't work for me. And that's okay. If that's someone else's coping mechanism, or if that's 30 other people's coping mechanism, but if that doesn't work for me, that's okay. It doesn't matter. As long as I can find what's healthy for me and what brings me inner peace and inner solace and can take me away and give me the rest that I need to do this kind of work that I love and I find meaningful, that's what's important. All right. Well, Carly, thank you so much for joining our podcast. Uh, your interview has, I'm sure, helped so many. Um, it's accessible. It's relatable. Um, your details and you're willing to describe painful moments, I'm sure is very helpful to so many of us. So this has been another episode of the Dear Katie podcast. My name again, Katie Kessner, 
And I encourage our listeners to subscribe, to follow, to share our message with as many as you can. And Sandra, anything else you'd like to add? Um, Just in closing, we're grateful to all of you who joined us for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, visit TakeBackTheNight.org for a list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. You also can help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. Thank you to them and thank you listeners for being present today. Always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving.